0: Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter.
1: So now, Lord, as we take up this great passage of Scripture I pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit upon me who attempts to unfold it and upon those who will listen. Lord, let your word be heard, I pray now, in power. Would you save those who are without Christ? Would you establish the saints unshakable in holiness and righteousness and purity and love? Would you heal broken relationships in this room? Would you touch people's bodies and deliver them from sickness? Would you give guidance to the perplexed in this service so that light falls upon their path And would you manifest your Son and His way of salvation in such a way that we love you more and love Him more than we ever have before. So that our lives might be the aroma of Christ in this putrefying world. Leave us not to ourselves now, I ask, but help us. In Jesus' powerful name, Amen. Well, now after some weeks away, we take up again our happy pilgrimage through this great territory of tall redwood-like trees and high Himalaya-like mountains called the Letter to the Romans. And we will spend a number of weeks on these verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7. In fact, the longer I worked on them, the more I thought it may be four weeks. We'll see before I get it all sorted out as to how it should be divided. But since we're going to spend more than one week on it, I feel no hurry this morning to get through these six verses and feel the liberty, therefore, for all of us who have not been here since April of 1998 to catch up with what we've seen in the book of Romans. So, I'll spend the first half of this message trying to uh, get us all up to speed and on the same page with regard to what Paul is about in these verses. Up through chapter 3, verse 20. Paul shows the hopeless condition of all of us human beings because of our sin against God. We have all belittled his glory. Chapter 3, verse 23. We've exchanged His glory for other things. We have treasured other things more than we have treasured God, and we have belittled Him. We are sinful in our practices and our attitudes, and we are sinful in our nature. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one does good apart from grace He is teaching us here. Everyone is accountable. Every mouth is stopped. And a holy, just, good, all-satisfying, all-glorious God is angry at us. And we will, if there is not a way of salvation, perish everlastingly under His wrath and fury. That's chapter... One through chapter three, verse twenty. Now, in chapter three, twenty-one, through the end of chapter five comes the gospel, the good news. There is a way of getting right with a holy, just, good, wrathful, angry, all-glorious, all-satisfying God that is utterly unlike anything the world commends for us to make things right. It is a way of getting right with God that is utterly and totally different from any moral improvement program any better rule keeping, any moral disciplined living, any nicer people becoming, any getting our relationships fixed, or any finding out how to succeed, it is utterly different from all of these, and it is called justification by faith. Now Paul opens for us in these chapters, 321 to the end of chapter 5, the meaning of the work of Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection. And the meaning is this. Jesus Christ came into the world to endure an infinite punishment in our place and to provide a perfect righteousness in our place. In other words, for us to get right with this holy God, our sin must be perfectly punished, and God's law must be perfectly obeyed. And that is the great transaction that happened in the incarnation of the Son of God into human history. He came to die for our sins and live for our righteousness. Which means, and this is the wonder of it, which means that justification, getting right, being put right with this God, happens totally outside ourselves. Before we were born or had anything to do with it or made any little baby steps in faith or righteousness, God did the decisive work and provided the foundation and basis and purchase price for that punishment and that righteousness. I remember... I just looked his name up again because it had slipped my mind on Friday and Saturday when I was working on this. So I took down the old Things Most Surely Believed book from Fuller Seminary Faculty in 1970. And reminded my name it was F. Carlton Booth. He used to lead the singing for Billy, not Graham, Sunday. And I had him as a teacher in evangelism. And I remember one sentence that F. Carlton Booth, in an evangelism class, said, namely, justification has been accomplished extra nos, outside ourselves. And he sent us packing to the introduction to the commentary on Galatians by Martin Luther. This is why I said it is utterly and totally different from a moral improvement program or better rule keeping or more disciplined living or becoming nicer people or getting our relationships fixed or finding out how to succeed. That has nothing, zero, to do with justification by faith. Those things contribute nothing to your standing with God. By faith in Jesus Christ. It is based wholly and totally on something outside ourselves performed by another Jesus Christ, the righteous. He lived, he died as a substitute for us before we were ever born or had anything to do with it at all. The foundation of our right standing with God is not in ourselves It is in Christ, His atoning death, and His perfect, glorious, consummate obedience. Now, the corollary of that glorious news that our alienation from God, and our wickedness, and our judgment, and our punishment... And unrighteousness can be remedied and we can be put right with God on a foundation utterly outside ourselves. The corollary of that is that the way you become a beneficiary of that salvation is through faith alone apart from works of the law. In other words, we don't perform any law-keeping to show that we have some, or all, or any of our justifying righteousness in ourselves. I'll say it again. We do not perform any law-keeping in order to demonstrate to God that any part... Of our justifying righteousness is in ourselves. Instead, what do we do? We acknowledge that all our punishment and all our righteousness was in the great act of Christ when He died. And we receive it as a free, all-satisfying, treasure now that little sentence is huge you become a beneficiary of this external provision of a glorious salvation in Christ not in you by receiving it as the treasure of your life I say As the treasure of your life. There is so much talk about believing and receiving, not as a treasure. It is possible to receive things you do not like. It is possible to believe in things you do not admire and esteem and treasure. And I want to make sure you understand, saving faith is not a believing in something you don't like. Saving faith is not believing in a person you don't cherish and treasure and love. Saving faith is a believing in and a receiving of a treasure or it does not save. Oh, that's so important to make plain in our easy believism age where people are just called to make this and that decision or the other and nothing ever changes. Christ just tacked on to their American way. Which brings us now to chapter 6 and a massive objection raised to Paul's doctrine. An objection that confirms that we're on the right path because of how plausible it is. It's expressed in verse 1 of chapter 6 and it's expressed in verse 15 of chapter 6. It goes like this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Someone is saying in response to Paul's preaching about justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. Well, shoot! If justification is through faith alone, apart from works of the law and if our punishment is past and if our righteousness is in heaven then let's just go on sinning so that it can be manifest how glorious this extraneous grace is that's a very plausible objection which confirms that we're on the right path because had Paul taught that a moral improvement program was the means of getting right with God that objection would never arise. That objection arises precisely because of how radical this teaching is. Namely that our Justification is provided by Christ's punishment and obedience outside ourselves in history. It's expressed again in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin? This is chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace. So somebody was saying Paul, what you teach, we're not under law. You don't get right with God through works of law. No law keeping is any part of your own righteousness for justification. You teach that, Paul. I think that means we should go on freely sinning. Verse 1, verse 15, and Paul's answer is no. 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 People who are justified by faith alone will not continue in sin. Sin will not have dominion over them. Verse 14. All of Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 is written to explain why that is. And we'll be in it for a couple more years. We began chapter 6 last September, finished it. Let's summarize the answer of chapter 6. There are several answers. Remember what he's trying to answer. Why is it that justified people who by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of the righteousness of Christ alone, have a right standing with God, don't go on sinning? Why is that? And his first answer is, because dead men don't sin. Verse 2. How can you continue in sin if you're dead to sin? His second answer, I'm not going to do four months all over again, just the answers. Answer number two, God himself is at work in us to deliver us from the slavery to sin. Verse 17, thanks be to God that you became obedient from the heart. Thanks be to who? Tell me. Thanks be to who? God has rendered our hearts obedient to Him. That's why justified people don't go on sinning, because Almighty God moves in, takes their heart by a sovereign manumission out of the slavery to the slave master. Sin puts it into the slave master. God and we now are bound to God. And if you're not, you're not justified. Because the evidence of being justified by this faith is that God moves into your life and binds you to Himself as a slave. Verse 22, having been freed by God, understand, from sin, and enslaved by God, understand, to God, you have your fruit, literally, resulting in sanctification... And the outcome of that is eternal life. No in-run around sanctification in chapter 6. Justification leads through sanctification to life or it doesn't lead to life at all. Now, here we are, chapter 7. What's he doing here in these first six verses of chapter 7? Answer? He's still explaining verse 15, 14 and 15 of chapter 6. He is still answering, shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? See, here's the perplexing thing. He said, sin will have no dominion over you because you're under grace, not under law. And then in his explanation from verses 16 to 23, he never mentions law. Not once. So you're kind of sketching your head by the end of chapter 6. Well, now wait a minute. The problem was, the problem that you created in verse 15 was, we're not under law. So why don't we become lawless? Why don't we become lovers and servants of people in India after an earthquake and in El Salvador. Why do we become lovers who want to give and go instead of lawless if we're not under law? And he doesn't even mention law. In a sense you might say, you didn't deal with a problem. He dealt with the problem, but you got to go deeper and then you come to the problem. And the problem is now taken up in these six verses. Law is the issue in verses 1 to 6 of Romans 7. And the issue is, why is it that not being under law doesn't produce lawless people? That's the issue in verses 1 to 6. Why is it that if you are redeemed, if you die to the law, you don't become lawless? lovers, serving one another in love, why is that? And that's what these six verses are about. Romans 7, 1 to 6. We're going to be here for three or four weeks, so relax and study them with me. Because every phrase could have a sermon. Every connection between every phrase could have another sermon. Um... With regard to this analogy of a marriage, and while the husband is alive, the law still holds, and she can't go marry another. And when he dies, she's free from the law. We'll take that up in detail next week. Today I know I've got lots of people here who are not going to be here next week. And I want to cut right to the quick of this text. I want the bottom line explanation answer to be clear when we're done. There's a lot of details here. But I want to know, Paul, why don't people who are dead to the law and are no longer under the law not become lawless? Why? I want to know the answer to that. I want to know your bottom line explanation to that. Because I want to produce, by the word of God, a people who are lovers of one another. Not lawless people. People who lay their lives down for one another. Not people who say, oh, let's continue in sin that grace may abound. That's not the church we want. That's not the evangelical movement we want. That's not the mission we want in the world. We want people ready to lay down their lives for this gospel. Now, why are those people produced? Because they're no longer under law. And the essence of the answer is in verse 4 and verse 6. So that's where we're going to go this morning. And we'll leave some details about the analogy which is very important for later. Verse 4, let's read it. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Really? Where? How? Through the body of Christ. This is the same theme he's been dealing with way back in chapter 6 verses 1 to 4, we died. We died with Christ. We were united to him by faith. What happened to him happened to us. When we were in him, we died with him. You died. And one of the things now that he hasn't said before, though he'll say it again in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, but here he says you died to the law through the body of Christ so that this is the key. You might be joined to another. Now here, I wish we had our marriage analogy before us, but I'll just say this means married again. A death has happened so that a new marriage without adultery can take place. And the new marriage is to Jesus. So that we might be joined to another him who was raised from the dead and here is the key of the key in order that we might bear fruit for God that's why you don't become lawless when you die to the law you marry another you are united to another What does it say about him? It's very important that we see what it says about our, our husband. It says, who was raised from the dead. We are not married to an external slate of duties. We're not married to a dead person. We're not married to a list of do's and don'ts. We're not married to anything merely external to us, outside, pressing upon us, trying to get us to do what we ought to do and don't want to do. We are, from the heart, joined to Jesus. And He's alive. There is a living Person that we're dealing with here. And we are united to him and he is all glorious, all providing, all satisfying, ever living, more real than the person next to you and that cannot leave you unchanged. If you are unchanged, you are unmarried. He cannot be your all-satisfying husband. And you still love the world more than you love him. That is impossible. When you died to the law, you married Christ. And the result of this marriage is fruit. You see that? So that we might bear fruit for God. And oh, you could go back to chapter 6, verse 22 and see it. I wish the NASB got literal. Come on, NASB, don't let me down when I need you. Hmm. Have fruit, says in verse 22, so that the link would be plain and they blow it. It's the fruit that leads into sanctification, which leads to life. So we die to the law in union with Christ when He dies. And in this union we have a new partner who's alive. He's not a list. He's alive and He's in us and He loves us. He's all over us. He's for us. He's power within, not pressure from without. And He's sweet, and He's all-satisfying, and nothing compares to Him. And out of that union of us with our living, loving, all-glorious, all-satisfying Christ comes offspring or fruit called obedience. Obedience. Love, service, sacrifice, Christ-likeness. So, being set free from the law does not mean freedom from love and justice. It means freedom to marry one who is love and is justice. Like fruit it comes on a vine, not like tinsel on a tree. So many people try to do the Christian life without knowing these things, experiencing these things, and the best they can do is take tinsel and put it on the tree of their lives. The tinsel of Bible reading, and the tinsel of prayer, and the tinsel of going to church, and the tinsel of not committing adultery, and the tinsel of voting right, and it has zero to do with Christianity. It's not Christianity. Verse 6, let's go to the quick again. We've seen it once, and now this is not different. This is just other words to say the same thing. We've seen the answer that he gives. We're going to see it again. Maybe these words will get you if those didn't. Verse 6, now, we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound. So there it is. Verse four said we died to the law through the body of Christ. Here it says we die to that which we were bound. The law was binding us and holding us. And now we're dead to it, released from it. And now here it comes. So that we may serve. We don't become lawless. When we die to the law. We don't become sinners. We become servants. That we may serve. In newness of the spirit. Not in oldness of the letter. Why did we die to the law? Why are we released from the law? Why has God ordained it that in Christ when he died, we died and thus died to the law so that the law is not binding on us anymore? Why did that happen? Notice the so that clause. This is why I said every relationship between every phrase deserves a sermon. It happened so that we may serve so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. So what kind of service? Newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. I'm going to preach a whole sermon on that phrase in a week or two. There is so much behind that. The new covenant is there. And I know just even phrase, the new covenant carries no meaning for hundreds of you. For Paul, it carried tons of meaning. There are words there like newness, letter, oldness, spirit, that if you could see inside Paul's mind, you'd see an ocean underneath those words. And I want you to get a trickle of it. So, what does he mean? It means the same thing as when you marry Jesus. Jesus is the Spirit. It's the Spirit of Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 9, you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. If the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. It's the Spirit of Christ here in verse 6. Verse 6 is not different from verse 4. To be united to Christ and thus to be married to Him is the same as being united to Christ and thus having the Spirit making us new. So, as I said, you you are married to him and he's all satisfying to you and he transforms you into his likeness. So now I say he's the spirit in you and he is transforming your mind and your heart and your attitudes and your actions into beautiful Christ likeness. That's what the spirit does. You are renewed in your mind. The newness of the Spirit is something that happens from the inside out, not the outside in. These are not letters anymore written on stone. You see, that's where he got the word letter. Letter. Why did he say letter? Why did he call the word letter? Because letters are what you carved into the stone on Mount Sinai. Letters are what you have on a page and they hit you like this. And they make you do what you don't want to do. And it does not succeed except to create little moral Improvement programs around the world, and you can do seminars on those and make a lot of money. Success seminars make a lot of money. Have nothing to do with justification and inward transformation by the power of the risen Christ, who never gets mentioned in these seminars, some of them. Christianity is a supernatural religion. The newness of the spirit is something that does not come to you, pressing on you from outside, calling for you to do something inside, to conform yourself to that, and so clean up your life so that you can prove yourself to God and go to heaven. That is zero Christianity. Christianity is to die to the law which comes to you from outside, pressing you to die to that and to live To Christ and to the Spirit, because from within, Christ has married you. From within, the Spirit is making you new. And things now are emerging inside because you are new. You are new. We know people like like that, and we know people we want to be like. Will I close by simply saying, keep verses 4 and 6 together. The answer of why doesn't being free from the law produce lawless people? In verse 4, it's because of a marriage to a risen Christ. In verse 6, it's because the renewing work of the Spirit. In verse 6, he speaks of serving in newness of the Spirit. In verse 4, he speaks of bearing fruit for God. They're all talking about the same thing. And both of them are based on death to the law. So, closing question. What is your life, justified Christian? What is your life? Are you a kind of... Free, floating, neutral, moral agent that can sin so that grace may abound. Be kind of a neutral, just floating around. No, you're not. That's not who you are. If you are justified by faith, you are united To Christ by faith. You are married to Him. He is the satisfying love of your life. And you bring forth fruit from this authentic relationship of love to a living person. If you are justified by faith, you are inhabited by the Spirit of Christ. You are not neutral. He's not neutral. He's not passive. He is at work in you to create a newness of mind and a newness of heart that loves and serves and is not lawless. Therefore, we will not continue in sin, and sin will have no dominion over us because we are not under law, but under grace. So, unbeliever, You sat there listening, unbeliever. God's mercy is on you to bring you under this word this morning. There you are. I wonder where you are. Some who thought you were believers when you came and know you weren't. And others came knowing you weren't a believer. And somehow, maybe you're in there watching me on television right now. How do you... Get in on this massive provision of justification. This progressive transformation by the Spirit and by the risen Christ. And the answer has been woven through everything I've said, namely... You trust this risen Christ to be for you your punishment and your righteousness. And in trusting him to be it for you, you receive him and all that he is for you as your treasure. You receive it. You just receive it. Let's pray. I ask, Father, for unbelievers that they would be granted help and grace to do what seems so foreign, it is so alien, it is so different than anything they've ever known, to trust in the finished work of another, to pay their debts, to be their punishment, to be their righteousness. So strange, so easy, and so hard. So, Lord, work it in all of us. May all those who have tasted grace and who have believed be refreshed now. Put our faith more firmly in this great gospel. Establish us, strengthen us, open our mouths to the neighborhoods and the nations. Let us enjoy you, our risen Christ. Let us taste the sweetness of your fellowship by the Spirit. Let us be transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we set our gaze upon you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.